0: In 400 AD, Paulinus, the Bishop of Nola, a city in southern Italy located not too far from Mount Vesuvius, began using bells as part of Christian worship. The practice soon spread across the Christian world, and church bells were rung to summon people to mass, mark the times of prayer, or celebrate special occasions, such as feast days or weddings. They were even believed to have the power to ward off demons. For centuries, Christian lives were structured by the pealing of the bells. Each day unfolded to the cadence and rhythm of sacred time. But a thousand years after their introduction, some people started using church bells for a different reason. Thanks to the textile trade, 14th century Florence was a boom town. Merchants purchased unfinished wool from England and then had it cleaned, carded, spun, dyed, and woven into exquisite cloth, which they then sold to wealthy customers across Europe and beyond. By 1340, more than a third of the entire population of Florence was working in the cloth industry. The aldermen who owned the textile houses began to petition the bishop if the church bell could be rung not when it was time to pray, but instead when the workers should go to work in the morning, when they should eat lunch, when they should return to work after eating, and when they should stop work for the day. Their petition was granted. In 1353, Florence went further and built an enormous clock tower in the center of town So that accurate time could be visible and audible from anywhere in the city. Liturgical time was gradually replaced by a new time. A time more focused on commerce. A time more interested in this world than the next. The bells began to toll for a secular time. Welcome to Ministry of Ideas. A podcast that explores the ideas that shape our world. I'm Zachary Davis. In this episode, we look at what it means to live in our secular age. And more importantly... What kinds of meanings are available to those of us who live in it?
1: There's an everyday understanding of secularism as just not religion. But this is misleading. Secularism is actually something, not just the absence of something else.
0: This is Craig Calhoun, a sociologist and president of the Berggruen Institute. He explains that in the United States, the word secular has a few different meanings. The first meaning grew out of the American colonial experience.
1: The different colonies that became the first states had different dominant religions, congregational or Catholic or Quaker. And each of these states didn't want the country as a whole to be declaring any one religion. So American secularism started out with the idea that there would be no government control over religion, no establishment or privileging of one religion.
0: By separating church and state, religions would be free to teach and practice their faith as long as they never invoke the state's coercive power, never seek to turn sin into crime, and always allow their believers to change their mind and turn to another religion or no religion. You could call this political secularism. A second meaning of secular emerged to refer to those individuals who did choose no religion. In 1851... The prominent British atheist George Holyo coined the term secularism to describe an outlook toward the world that rejected religious dogma and supernaturalism in favor of reason and empirical evidence. People drawn to this worldview often call themselves secular humanists. This we might call personal secularism. But a third meaning of secularism refers not so much about whether you personally believe in God or not, but how much religious beliefs actually influence a society's politics, education system, and other spheres of public life. How secular a society is isn't just a matter of how many people attend church or personally pray to God, but how much religious frameworks and categories shape people's thoughts, commitments, and loyalties. And for many centuries in the West, the influence of religion on daily life has been receding. Over time, there came
1: to be large scale complex markets, governments, and other big institutions. And eventually, science and new technologies that people related to without needing to have reference to religion. So you might be a very religious person, but the way in which you use your computer, how you push the keys, how you connect it to the internet, isn't something for which you turn to religion for guidance. There's been this growth in aspects of life that are not within the domain of religion, even for religious people.
0: One of the earliest people to write about this gradual shift towards secularism in the West was the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. As he walked around Copenhagen in the 1840s and 50s, he could see that the power of Christianity was fading, that even those who considered themselves Christian were, in his words, only playing Christianity, and were actually far more interested in comfortable bourgeois life, more focused on possessions, projects, and plans than sin and salvation. But Kierkegaard worried that these mundane pursuits were ultimately empty of any kind of lasting meaning. Kierkegaard
2: thought that the right thing to do was to recover the original meaning of Christianity, which had somehow been lost
0: over centuries of misuse and misappropriation. This is Sean Kelly, a professor of philosophy at Harvard University.
2: He thought that there was a deep truth about human beings as Christianity was lived in the early Christian communities, and he thought the right thing to do was to teach his community, which was mid-19th century Copenhagen, uh, a community all of whose members understood themselves to be Christians, Lutherans in in particular, uh, to teach that community that really they didn't understand the first thing about what they thought they were and who they thought they were, and to try to help them understand what it would take to live an authentic Christian existence. He thought if you could recover that authentic Christian existence, then you
0: could get uh, a ground for the meaning in a life. For Kierkegaard, secularism was empty. It might be more reasonable. It might be more comfortable. But in his view, secularism could never offer human beings the deeper inspiration and meaning that they most longed for. The way forward for the West was to go backward, to return to what Kierkegaard believed to be a more pure and genuine version of Christian faith. But for a different but equally gloomy European philosopher, there was no going back. In 1882, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche published a book called The Gay Science. In his most famous passage, Nietzsche has a character called the Madman run into the middle of a market shouting. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him.
1: How shall we console ourselves? The most murderous of all murderers, the holiest and the mightiest that the world has hitherto possessed has bled to death under our knife.
2: Nietzsche felt like Kierkegaard that there was some sense in which the hold that Christianity had on our lives was loosening. And he thought this was great cause for joy (laughs) rather than cause for regret. And he thought the right thing to do was to teach people who were still sort of holding on to the idea that Christianity was orienting them in their lives, to teach them To give up that sense and discover all the great new possibilities that there were once
0: Christianity had released its hold on you. What new possibilities did Nietzsche have in mind? Well, first off, he thought there were endless possibilities, because meaning would no longer be something to be inherited or discovered, but created. Each person would have the power to create their own meaning in the world. But what made Nietzsche happy about the death of God was that people would be free to reject what he believed were the weak and self-denying values of Christianity in favor of an approach to life that glorified strength, competition, and achievement. This partly explains why he loved the ancient Greeks so much. He admired the way that the great warriors in the Homeric epics didn't seem to worry about guilt or sin, but instead engaged in a passionate struggle to conquer and impose their will upon the world. For Nietzsche, power was its own source of meaning. Embracing the will to power wasn't the only thing Nietzsche thought the ancient Greeks could teach a post-theistic Europe. He also thought their approach to art offered a powerful substitute for many of the functions that Christian churches tended to supply. Things like moral guidance, ritual, and community building. In particular, Nietzsche was fascinated by the ancient Greek theater festivals and the way that they combined music and drama to convey important truths and elevate the public. Nietzsche wasn't alone in believing that art and culture could replace a fading Christianity. One of his friends, the German composer Richard Wagner, also wanted to recreate the experience of the Greek theater festivals. On August 13, 1876, in a small Bavarian town called Bayreuth, Wagner premiered Das Rheingold, the first of an epic four-part musical drama called The Ring of the Nibelung. It was a huge cultural and political event. Nietzsche was in attendance, as was the German Emperor Kaiser Wilhelm, the Brazilian Emperor Don Pedro II, and a lot of important composers like Edvard Grieg, Franz Liszt, and Peter Tchaikovsky. Wagner's Bayreuth festival was a self-conscious attempt to use art to create new myths, rituals, and experiences that would give a secular society meaning and inspiration. It would prove to be a very popular idea. Beginning in the late 19th century, many formerly private art collections, typically owned by wealthy nobles, were turned into public museums, designed to be, like churches, a place where people could go for moral uplift and solace. Likewise, literature, paintings, and music were promoted as being capable of doing the kind of soul expansion that scripture or sermons once sought to do. This new emphasis on culture, however, eventually became dangerously entwined with ethno-nationalism. Communities looked to their own national myths and artistic heritage to provide the social unity and purpose that Christianity no longer could. And it sometimes led to theories of ethnic and racial superiority. In fact, arguably, no place took the role of high culture more seriously than Nazi Germany. Wagner was famously Hitler's favorite composer. Sean Kelly explains why he thinks this approach to art ultimately failed as a replacement god. One possibility is that
2: what Nietzsche and Wagner were aiming at was a kind of total unified characterization of everything that is. I mean, that would really be a sort of art replacing monotheistic Christianity with a different kind of monotheism. So one possible reason that hasn't worked is that the sense that as we sort of become more and more familiar with wider and wider swaths of humanity and people living in different cultures and so on, so much easier to have that kind of recognition of difference. The idea that what we should be aiming for is something that unifies us all as a whole makes somewhat less sense. There might be many ways of grounding the meaning in a life not all of which are consistent with one another, but the, it's the demand for consistency that we're ready to give up now in the recognition that there are you know, lots of, lots of ways of
0: living. For a long time, the United States resisted some of the secularizing trends seen more dramatically in Europe. Americans consistently were a much more believing, more church-going population. But in recent years, there are increasing signs that this is beginning to change especially among younger people.
3: We're seeing that over a third now of the millennial generation is unaffiliated, right? So that means that when asked on a survey, which religious identity do you carry, they check none of the above.
0: This is Angie Thurston, a researcher at Harvard Divinity School who writes about the spiritual lives of millennials.
3: They are what I would call religiously homeless, right? They don't have a place to go, a community to go around whatever it is that their spiritual life entails. And so it's some combination of of lack of belief, but I would say more so people not feeling that the work that they would be looking for religious community to do is being done by the institutions that are supposed to do it. (laughs) So whether that's a specific traumatic experience they've actually had, or whether it's just having grown up without an institutional religion in their lives, And a sense, therefore, that it is irrelevant to their lives.
0: While many young people may be disillusioned with formal religious life, it doesn't mean they aren't looking for spirituality and meaning. They're just looking for it in unexpected ways.
3: And then you start to see things like millennials valuing how much their work aligns with their sense of purpose and starting to treat their workplace as a a meaningful community, right? A place where they should go and feel a sense of fulfillment. The rise of benefit corporations and social impact as a form of investing, the triple bottom line about how, oh, corporations should be doing good in addition to making profit. All of these gestures in the secular sphere seem to me to have something to do with that mismatch between the job religion is supposed to do and the society that's kind of floundering looking around for that job being done.
0: But Angie suspected that for most people, their job couldn't possibly be a total replacement for religion.
3: I really wanted to know, okay, if people are not gathering in the traditional houses of worship associated with institutional religion, where are they gathering? Because I believe they're gathering somewhere. (laughs) It turns out many of them were gathering at the gym. And so first encountered this entire landscape of fitness communities of high accountability, high bondedness among the people participating. So you have CrossFit, you have SoulCycle, you have the November Project, Tough Mudder, Spartan Race, this whole sector of these fitness communities where people's relationships and shared goals and high accountability to each other bring them back into deeper and deeper relationships. And the meaning that they ascribe to their communities around this is, it's astounding. People meeting their partners and spouses in these contexts, having their going away parties when they move, moving to be closer to the box if they're a CrossFitter. When somebody gets sick, that's where they make the meal plan and divvy up the driving, right? When somebody passes away, they name a workout after that person, right? There's an incredible resemblance to a lot of what is associated with a religious community in this fitness world.
0: When Angie first told me that gyms were the new churches, I thought, yeah, maybe. Every CrossFitter I know does act like they're in a cult. But I was skeptical that these fitness communities offered much beyond toned abs. But then I listened to this soul cycle ad. This is not about a class, it's not about a bike, it's about you. This is about you.
1: This is about you. You,
3: your purpose,
2: your
1: goals,
3: your drive. This is about you. What are you looking for? What are you looking for? What's your story? <laughs> what are you gonna come for? What do you need? Be what you need to be and it's all yours.
0: Find your truth. Find yourself, find your soul. Find your soul. Find your soul. Find, your soul. find it. Find your soul find your soul. Okay, that sounds a lot like religion. But still, I must admit, I found that ad ridiculous. Cycling in the dark to pulsing pop songs might get you in shape, make some friends, and improve your self-esteem. But can it really help you, as it claims, to find truth, find yourself, find your soul? Can it really satisfy the needs religion once did? Angie invites us to keep an open
3: mind. Much of the story that's told is one of doom and decline, especially in the world of religious institutions where I spend my days a lot of the time. And I have the privilege of being privy to stories and building relationships that are just about as profound a counter-narrative as you could find.
0: (laughs) I agree with Angie that the decline of religion doesn't mean the end of spiritual seeking. However, whatever new forms of meaning-making that we develop in our secular age, whether through art fitness, science, politics, or something else, I think they are likely to fall short of fulfilling our deepest human needs unless we integrate a few of the qualities that religions at their best tend to embody. One is that religions bind us to a larger community and help us learn to care for people who are different than us. Another is that religions counter nihilism and foster an orientation of gratitude. Here's Professor Kelly describing what this process can look like. There are. Sources of meaning in a life.
2: In fact, manifold sources of meaning in a life. And that's a life that's devoted to recognizing it, searching for it in your own existence, and being grateful for it when you find it, is a life that will, over the course of time, develop in itself the ability to recognize more and more of what you need to be grateful for and what you want to be grateful for. It seems to me that, I, I guess, I think, um, that learning to be grateful for whatever it is you can be grateful for is one of the saving practices. Uh, that,
0: But that it's, um, it takes a certain kind of attention And finally, and perhaps most important, religions can inspire hope in a better world. Yes, often that has meant hope in some sort of afterlife, but it has also included a faith that this world and the people in it can be transformed for the better. I worry that one of the biggest problems of secularism is that it can lead to pessimism that we can collectively overcome the challenges before us. It is a pessimism often based on a rational, scientific interpretation of social conditions. But that is precisely why we need a hope that goes beyond reason, to give us the strength to pursue a world beyond reasonable expectations. In our secular time, meaning might be harder to find. It isn't just given to you. And it isn't found in just one place. But the upside is that we have the possibility of creating and experiencing meaning in thousands of different ways. We can embrace the fragile majesty of our relationships with others. learn to be sensitive to the surpassing wonder of existence. We can build communities of love wherever we find ourselves. We can use our imagination to dream up a new world. Ministry of Ideas is produced by Nick Anderson, Zachary Davis, Olavi Kothamasu, and Virginia Marshall. Music is by Steve LaRosa. Special thanks to Alex Kingsbury and Dante Ramos from the Boston Globe for their ongoing support. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing us with your friends, reviewing us on iTunes, or visiting our website at ministryofideas.org and making a donation. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Pub & Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubandspokeaudio.org. Today I want to tell you about a Hub & Spoke show called The Lonely Palette, a show hosted by a brilliant art historian named Tamar Abishai. And she shows just how fascinating and exciting art really is. Her writing and voice are amazing, and in just 20 minutes or less, she can open up a whole new understanding of an artwork you probably just take for granted like her episode on Marcel Duchamp's Fountain. I always disliked that. I still dislike it, but now at least I understand it a little bit better. You can listen at thelonelypalette.com.